Hello, you're listening to the podcast of Bay Ridge Christian Church. Each Sunday, our aim is to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ from the text of the Bible and to catalyze the hearts of our hearers to love and gratitude towards God and all of His creation. We hope you enjoy this teaching, and we pray that you will be encouraged to trust in Jesus today. The, the classic movie, the Princess Bride, the, uh, the, the bad guy, Vizzini, who's, who's one of the, the three criminals, he keeps saying when things keep happening, inconceivable. And uh, Manny Patankin's character, uh, Inigo Montoya, says at one point, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. Because he keeps saying things are inconceivable, but they keep happening. And so I bring that thing up today just because it's a great movie scene. And also because it relates to what I want to talk about. There are oftentimes words that we use and I want to say to people, I don't think that word means what you think it means. And that includes the word that's going to be bantered around a lot this weekend all the way through Tuesday, which is the word freedom. If there's ever been a culture that liked to use the word freedom, it's America. We like the word freedom. And a lot of people are going to be using it, but I am pretty sure it doesn't mean what they think that it means. And so today we want to take time to look and ask ourselves, what is true freedom? What does freedom really mean? And where is freedom found? Because in some ways, you're in a more dangerous position if you use a word and it's, it's a key word and you don't really know what it means. So what is freedom? Now, the interesting thing is that this uh, problem of insufficient understandings of freedom, of insufficient freedom, is the same problem that they faced in Jesus' own day. Notice that in our text, in verse 31 and 32, Jesus had said, you know, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. And the, the people that are around Jesus answer him and say, we're Abraham's descendants. We, we've never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? And Jesus then tells them, well, I'm telling you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. They're actually indignant when Jesus tells them, you need to be free. And they're indignant because they say, we are free. And Jesus is in essence telling them, that's because you don't understand what freedom really is. You're in a worse position because you're actually slaves, but you think your slavery is your freedom. The reason they believed they were free already is they said, because we're the physical descendants of Abraham. And in being his physical descendants, that is freedom. Now, it's somewhat ironic because we could even sit there and say, really? Because you are crushed underfoot politically. The guy who rules over you that's supposed to be a Jew is not really a Jew. And he's merely just a puppet to a Roman empire that is far away. You can't do most of the things that you want to do. So even in that limited sense, you're not free. But Jesus is going to be driving in something far deeper and saying, even if that were not the case, you still would not be free. You are actually slaves. And so they had an incomplete view of freedom that was not based on what freedom actually was. And so it is today. We have many different ways that the word freedom is going to be used this weekend. The primary way is it's going to be used to speak of political freedom. We believe that 
if you have political freedom, you are free to vote, in essence, democracy, then that is real and true freedom. And let me say, political liberty and the right to elect one's leaders is a good thing. I, I would rather have political freedom than tyranny. Freedom is better than tyranny, and it's more in line with the way we've been made by God. Um, and I'll actually talk, I'm not gonna talk about it much today, but if you look at the After Hours video this week, I'm gonna talk some about both political liberty and religious liberty and freedom and what those things mean and why they're important. But do we understand that freedom to vote does not mean you are truly free? You remember a few years ago, we've lived through this. You remember the purple thumbs? Okay, did, did that produce real freedom? not see we were somewhat naive our culture has so bought into this idea we thought if we give you democracy and Pepsi Cola everything's gonna be okay and then we discover it's not okay in fact many of those places descended into chaos is what they actually did freedom to vote does not mean we are truly free in fact some people exercise that freedom to elect tyrants who will then begin to systematically remove all kinds of freedom. So while there is good in it, it's an insufficient view of what freedom actually is. Now another thing that is oftentimes meant today beyond the political sphere is that freedom is the liberty of choice that as long as what I'm doing does not harm others, I should be free to do that activity. This actually goes back, in many ways, not to the American Revolution, but to the French Revolution. And in their uh, article, The Declaration of the Rights of Man and the Citizen, which is part of the French Revolution, they have this statement. Liberty consists in being able to do anything that does not harm others. And so freedom means I'm free to take any action I want as long as that action does not harm others. And again, there is some truth in this. Liberty of choice is not inherently evil. We were actually created by God with a liberty of choice. In fact, in the very garden, I'm telling you, eat from every tree, just don't eat from this tree. So liberty of choice is not inherently an evil thing. And it's good when our choices do not harm others physically. Most of us would agree that, as we put it in our culture, my right to swing my fist around ends precisely where your nose begins, right? So that in and of itself is not a bad thing. But there is a great insufficiency in this view because, of course, the question is, well, what exactly is it that harms others? If I commit adultery, I have not physically harmed my wife. But have I actually acted in freedom? No, and, I'm, and, my, and my freedom is about to come to a crashing end. Okay, see that's, that's, and that's the real problem. What about if I just engage in slander? Remember the old sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. Really, have you ever had anybody slander your name? You might find out you'd rather have a stick or a stone than do that. And so the problem with this is, 
It's again a very limited view and it assumes we're all going to agree on what is actual harm to another person, but therein oftentimes lies the exact problem. What one person thinks is a good, another person thinks is a harm. And by the nature of who we've been made, which is the point I'm gonna keep coming back to, none of us are an island, and therefore my actions always have consequences for you. And it's virtually impossible for you to say, I'm gonna take an action and it won't produce good or ill towards you. Almost always my actions have ripple effects that create reverberations for other people. Now, what this view of freedom that is, that is uh, recognized there has actually been increasingly taken over by our culture and the problem is it can't stop at that place. So it is now degraded to another view of freedom which is unfettered liberty of choice even mandated approval by others. It's not just I want the freedom to act and declare that I don't really think it harms you though you say it does. I, that, that's not enough. Now you must positively approve of my words, thoughts, attitudes, actions, lifestyle. And if you do not, you are restricting my freedom. This is where we have moved to that anything we want has to be accepted and then in fact has to be applauded by others. And if you do not, I'm willing to even go back and remove that first bit of political freedom and religious freedom and other types of freedom to mandate and twist your arm into approving what I want. Ken Myers had kind of prophetically seen some of this coming and uh, wrote this. The common modern understanding of freedom begins by denying any ultimate ends for human well-being beyond choosing itself. Freedom in this modern view is freedom from any restrictions on choosing, including any restrictions derived from human nature, from the demands of justice, from good that exists prior to the human will. In other words, freedom is simply the ability for a human will to choose as if there is nothing else outside of that will, which is kind of what we did in the garden. And we declare that freedom, but Jesus declares it to be something else, which we will come back to in a minute. And the problem with this measure of freedom is obviously it's inherently self-contradictory because then what I want and what you want, as soon as they, they're in conflict with one another, we now have a problem because you're going to say, well, you can't hold your opinion because that harms me. And I'm gonna say, well, you holding your opinion's harming me. And we've now degraded into a two-year-old tussle uh, fighting over a toy or something. There, there's no rationality, there's no luck. There can be no rational discussion, but we continue on doing it. And so you notice what the, Ken Myers has said there is that it can't even uh, go against, you, you can't take into account human nature, for example. So now what we have is if I determine my gender is a particular thing, it does not matter if someone else says, but every strand of DNA in your entire body declares something else. You've now restricted my freedom by even pointing that out to me because freedom has nothing to do with human nature. It has nothing to do with things like science. It has only to do with what I have chosen. But this has led to a, a, a battle royal going on. I just read an extended interview with Camille Paglia, who's one of the leading feminists of our generation, and she was excoriating the transgender movement because 
the feminist understanding of what it means to be male and female and the transgender understanding of what it means that there is no such thing as male and female are mutually contradictory and exclusive. And so they're in a battle royal going on right now because they can't both be true. And there's another battle that is brewing, which is what has been argued for a number of years is you cannot speak anything about my moral choices because I was born this way. Right? Remember Lady Gaga really popularized that with her album a few years ago. And I was born this way. But now there's a group of people saying, I wasn't born this way. I choose to be this way. And in fact, I'm fluid. Whatever I choose today may be different than what I choose tomorrow, and that is ultimately my choice. But once again, they're mutually contradictory. But when we've walked down this path of this understanding of freedom, there is no way that there can be actual freedom, liberty, or peace for anyone. And so most of the views of freedom today, and what most people are going to mean by freedom, you could stand up and just, you ought to carry the Princess Bride clip around with you and just play it. I don't think that word means what you think it means. Because it's, it's assumed we're all talking about the same thing, but most of the views of freedom today are incomplete or they're downright false and self-contradictory. And their problem is none of them offer the full freedom that God intends for us as his creation and as his people. And so Jesus, notice in the text, says, here's your real problem. He's dealing with this with the Pharisees. When they answer him in verse 33 and say, we're Abraham's descendants, we've never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Notice Jesus says, here, here I'll tell you the truth. If you sin, you're a slave to sin. And this drives to the root issue. The real freedom that is needed is a freedom from sin. It is not a freedom simply to choose, but rather it's a freedom to choose rightly. It is the ability to choose right over wrong, light over dark, good over evil. And in the absence of that, there isn't really freedom. Whether you have a purple thumb, whether you are acting in ways that you believe produce no harm, or whether you are simply saying, this is who I am and everyone else must affirm it. There is no freedom if we're not able to actually act in accord with what is right. And this is because what Jesus is telling us here is the very nature of sin is not that it frees, but rather that it enslaves. The nature of sin is to deceive us so that it can enslave, distort, and destroy our humanity. So we cannot be who God made us to be. That's the very nature of sin. That is always what it does, and it can't be reduced or brought down from there. And our problem that underlies these other ideas of freedom is we think we can manage sin. That, that's what most of humanity is on. In fact, so often in the church we're on that. We have a better sin management program than someone else. But you can't manage sin. Sin cannot be managed, nor can it be contained. And the thought that we can is a fool's errand. Sin always grows, always spreads, always consumes, 
and it always leaves destruction in its way. Now, this is where if you go back, and we won't turn there, but I remind you, in Genesis, the choice was made, and freedom was exercised in the garden. And how long does it take us to get from that choice to, say, murder? Long time, right? Like five verses? Right? Why is that? What's the scripture telling us? Obviously, time had passed. Cain and Abel, and we know others had been born, and they had grown up. Why does the scripture compress the story like that? And in the very next chapter, I mean, in that same chapter, we learn about Lamech, who, who kills seven, says, I'm seven times worse than Cain. He's glorying in his sin. And then in the very next chapter, we read this genealogy. And what's the point of Genesis 5? And he died. And he died. And he died. No matter how long they live, no matter where they spread, no matter what their other accomplishments, they die. Because sin cannot be contained. It cannot be managed. And therein lies the problem. That's why Jesus tells them, you, you don't really understand what freedom is because you think you are free while you are actually slaves. So what then is true freedom? Well, Jesus tells us here in this passage that true fear, freedom is found in Christ. As he debates with them in verse 36, he says, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Here's true freedom when the Son sets you free. Jesus has come to set us free from slavery to sin. And if you have been set free from slavery to sin, if I have been set free from slavery to sin, then we are truly free. Whether or not I have political liberty, whether or not I have even religious liberty, whether or not I have the other things that we've talked about, true, real, essential freedom, Jesus says, is my gift to you. If the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Now this begins for us as believers with our justification, where in Christ Jesus, you and I, who are actually sinful and wicked and whose behavior and whose nature has cried out for judgment, God declares us to be just and righteous and are, we are freed from the penalty of our sin. And so Jesus declares us just in this and in our justification, we are free from the penalty of sin which is freedom indeed. But it also includes sanctification, which is increasing freedom from the power of sin. We are not only justified, in that very moment, Jesus is saying, here's the true freedom that the Son of God gives. There is an increasing freedom from the power of sin because you and I cannot just simply say, well, thanks be to God, I'm forgiven of the penalty. I'm now going to engage in sin, and somehow that's not going to enslave me. Not possible. All sin enslaves. That's its nature. And there is no joy in being under the dominion of sin. 
because it's not who you were made to be and it's not who I was made to be. And so justification is the beginning, but it always, always includes sanctification. It always ushers in sanctification. And Jesus loves you and me too much to abandon us to the enslaving, deceiving, distorting, destroying power of sin. He never is going to sit there and look at his child and say, well, at least you're forgiven. And yes, you are being deceived. You are being enslaved. Your, your very being is being distorted. And all that is good and right in you is being destroyed moment by moment. But hey, I'm just, I love you, but I'm going to just sit by and watch this. Would any parent do that with their child? Never. We would not do that. And Jesus is not going to do it with you and with me. And so to be free requires being free from the enslavement of sin. And what this deals with, we'll come back in a couple of minutes to one aspect of this in our text, but the same idea is expounded upon in many places in Scripture. I'm just going to turn to one. What Jesus is getting at is to be saved from sin is to be saved to righteousness. One is not saved from sin into some kind of a place where it's just mere choice now. And that's what I'm going to have just mere freedom. No, you are in slavery to sin or you are set free from that to become slaves to righteousness. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Romans 6 where he's dealing with this very question. In verses 17 and 18 he says, But thanks be to God, though you used to be slaves to sin. That's the same idea as John chapter 6. I mean uh, John chapter 8. You wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You obeyed the word when it came to you, and so you're no longer slaves to sin. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Same point that Jesus is making. Jesus comes and saves you and I from sin so we can be slaves to righteousness. You know, there's the, the quip when you say Jesus saves, saves from what? Well, Part of the answer is he saves from sin to righteousness. And it's important that we get both halves of the equations. One of the problems we've had in the church is very often we reduce these things down to little quips, and the quips are only partially true. For example, how many of you in here have ever heard justification is just as if I'd never sinned? We ever heard that? Okay, that's a half truth. Justification is just as if I'd never sinned and just as if I'd positively obeyed God's law and kept it with my every thought, word, and deed. And it's important that we have both halves of that. Well, this is also, Jesus does save from sin. That's important, but it's only a partial truth. He saves from sin to righteousness. And there is no saving from sin without going to righteousness. And so we and the way we are made, we are created, we will either serve sin or we will serve righteousness. There is no such thing as mere freedom. Bob Dylan, the great theologian, had it right. You're going to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to serve somebody. That's the way it is. Well, Bob's already preached to Shelby. He's, 
And he's absolutely right. So true freedom is not found in merely making a choice because that's not the sort of beings you and I are. That's the inherent problem in these other views of freedom. They act as if I can remove freedom from the question of what does it mean to be human? Well, it, you can't do that. Freedom for a human being is inherently tied with what it means to be human. And as a human, true freedom is found in being a slave to righteousness so that our actions and our desires are increasingly in line with God's nature, his character, and his will. You were created to be the image of God and so was I. And any choice that pulls me from that is not freedom, it's slavery. Adam and Eve exercised their will. And it did not bring freedom. It brought bondage. It brought death. And if we understood that, we, we Americans love to talk about our free will. If we understood it, you'd give that sucker away. This is, I, I consistently get myself in trouble. I want to be a slave to righteousness. That's what I want to be. See, we hear Paul's words and we say, oh, that's what I'm trying to get away from. And Paul says you're on a fool's errand. It may be the devil, or it may be the Lord, but you're going to serve somebody. That is the nature of who we are. And so, what Paul's talking about when he says you're a slave to righteousness, it's actually a restoration to who we were meant to be. And therein lies your freedom and mine. Ultimate freedom is going to be found not only when we've been justified and sanctified, but when we're glorified. And my every desire is right. There is nothing in me that wants that which is bad or evil. There is nothing in me that pulls that way, but everything in me, every fiber of my being, every thought I have, every breath I breathe, actually turns and says, it is my desire. I am here to do your will, O God. This is what I long for. Jesus is going to look at that and say, that one's one the Son has set free, and you are free indeed. That is true freedom. The philosopher D.B. Hart, David Bentley Hart, wrote an article in the New Atlantic, uh, the New Atlantis, uh, back in 2004, and it's actually on the pornography culture, is what the article is about. But he has this quote, and I want you to pay attention to this, because it drives at the same thing Jesus is saying here. It's become something of a commonplace among scholars to note that, from at least the time of Plato through the High Middle Ages, the Western understanding of human freedom was inseparable from an understanding of human nature. To be free was to be able to flourish as the kind of being one was. Step back for a second, think about it. Is a fish free if it flops up onto the land? But it exercised its little fish will. Why is it not free? It's going to die. It's not the sort of creature that walks around on land. It's the sort of creature that lives in the water, okay? So you can't separate freedom from the kind of being one is. So to choose awry then through ignorance or maleficence or corrupt longing was not considered to be a manifestation of freedom, but of slavery to the imperfect, the deficient, the privative, the literally subhuman. Liberty of choice was only the possibility of freedom, 
not its realization. He's echoing what Jesus said. This is what freedom really is. But the problem is we've been raised in a culture that has told us over and over what freedom was and given us this thing, and, and you need to preach this week like Inigo Montoya. You need to say to yourself and to those around you, I am sure that word does not mean what you think it means. Because in fact, you see how dastardly it is. The very practice we're proclaiming freedom by is actually slavery. We've sold ourselves into slavery and called it freedom. But calling it freedom doesn't make it so. So how do we apply the word? Just one question today for us to consider because I want to come to the table. And that's, am I experiencing the freedom that Christ gives? The first obvious question is, have I experienced freedom from the penalty of sin by having it forgiven in Christ? There is no other way. These Jews stood before Jesus and said, but we're physical descendants of Abraham, so we are free. And Jesus said, no, you're not. Being physical descendants of Abraham does not set you free. Being in the Son sets you free. Being my disciple set you free, regardless of whether you're physical descendants of Abraham or not. So there is only one way for us to be free of the penalty of sin, and that is through the righteous life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, through his broken body, his shed blood that we're going to celebrate at this table. And so have we heard and embraced that? Have we looked to him? Are we in the sun? Because being a member of Bay Ridge does not make you free. Being an American does not make you free. Knowing a bunch of theology does not make you free. Being in the Son makes you free. Have you looked to Him for forgiveness? There is no other forgiveness. And woe to us if we think on that day I can step up with purple on my thumb or whatever else I've got and think that that is my freedom and have God say, your sins weigh you down, and they weigh you down to hell. Have we experienced freedom of forgiveness of sin? Second question, and this is the one I want us to focus on the rest of the time, and I want to turn this question to multiple angles. Am I experiencing freedom from sin's destructive power? Because if you can answer that first question and say, oh yes, Brett, I believe the gospel. I have embraced it. It's Jesus' righteousness, not mine. It's Jesus' blood that has forgiven me. It is faith alone. And you could give an explanation that Martin Luther would say, you've out-Luthered me. There's still another question, which is, am I experiencing freedom from sin's destructive power? Do not be deceived. Sin is always destructive, and it is always enslaving. No less to a child of God and the one who is not a child of God. It's the nature of sin. Make no mistake, sin is its own penalty as it distorts our very humanity. It's its own penalty because when sin comes in contact with the human soul, there's immediate distortion. There's immediate deformity. There's immediate degradation from who I was meant to be. Even if I'm a blood-bought, 
forgiven child of God. And so Jesus wants to set us free, not just from penalty, but from power. And as a believer, am I experiencing that? Now, let me turn the question a little bit and ask it another way that Jesus asked him the same thing, but it's the same question. Am I letting God's word define what sin is? Because here's what we do in our culture. No, I, I have a clean conscience. I am not trapped in any sin. And then if someone points it out, well, that's not really sin. We now understand. No, we, we don't now understand. God's word defines sin. Notice in verses 31 and 32 what kicked off this discussion, where Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, if you remain, if you abide in my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. God's word defines for us where freedom is found. And there are many today who want to engage in sin and then think that I will get out from under that by declaring I define my sin down. What, what Robert Bork years ago talked about slouching towards Gomorrah. I just simply redefine what's actually going on. And so it doesn't seem so bad. But see, that's not freedom. Because whether I'm defining it as sin or not does not change whether it's sin. And sin is going to distort, deform, and destroy. It is going to enslave whether I've tried to redefine it or not. And the only thing that can accurately define what is sin and what is righteousness is the Word of God. It does not matter if I say, well, I've been seeking the Spirit, the, the Lord, my conscience is saying it. None of that matters. It matters what the Word of God says. And I can tell you, I've had evangelicals across years want to tell me, well, but, there is no but. If the Scripture declares this to be sin, it's sin. It's really not that complex. But we want to try and define it differently. But Jesus says, you want to be free, you hold, you abide in, you remain, you grasp my word, because that's freedom, not whatever culture around you is telling you is freedom. Turn that question a little bit more to whether I'm being freed from sin's power. Am I actually repenting and actively repenting of known sin? Don't, don't take this for granted. Okay, I, I've been walking with Jesus now for 39 years. It is easy, after 39 years, to just say, yeah, well, I mean, I know that's there. I'm, you know, we're going to work on that later, Lord. That's enslaved. Because if, if we could just for a moment really see what sin was doing to us and what it's doing to those we love, Oh, the repentance that would sweep through our lives, our families, our churches. Are we actively repenting? Not just the general, Lord, I know this is wrong. I confess this, and I want you to break this in my life. I don't want peace treaties with the devil. I 
don't want peace treaties with the devil. And finally, last way of looking at this question, if I am really being freed from sin's power, I'm not only letting God's word define what it is, I'm not only actively repenting from any known sin that God's word has defined for me, I am seeking to put sin off and put on righteousness. This is where, again, that slavery to sin or righteousness, one of the Puritan leaders uh, did a sermon called The Expulsive Power of Holy Affections. And what it basically boils down to is, you remember the old saying, you know, idle hands are what? The devil's workshop. You know why? Because if my hands aren't engaged in righteousness, they don't remain engaged in nothingness. Not the way we are. And too often, do you remember the Apostle Paul said, he who's been stealing must what? Stop stealing. Work hard with his hands so he can be able to give to others. It's not enough to stop stealing. I must positively begin to work hard because if I don't begin to work hard, remember in the parable, seven demons and the guy and they get cast out and then it's not replaced with righteousness and what happens? Come back with works. And Jesus says the man's state was worse at the end than it was at the beginning. I have to actively not only put off sin, but put on righteousness. So you even look in, a, in our catechism, by the way, you can go through, when we go through the Ten Commandments as God's law to guide us, if you notice, for every commandment, it's not only the negative, thou shalt not, the New Testament always takes that and says that implies thou shalt. Not only thou shalt not steal, thou shalt work hard and give to others. Not only you shall not commit adultery, but you shall absolutely, positively be faithful to your spouse and embrace them and love them and serve them. Not only do you not slander others, you speak well of them. Always there is a positive. You put off sin, you put on righteousness. And if I am not doing that, I'm not actively being freed from the power of sin. Because it may not happen today or tomorrow, but I'm planning to end up right back where I just was. So what we're going to do is we're going to come to the table. And the worship team is going to come up, and they're going to actually lead us in a song, uh, Jesus, Thank You. We're going to be singing this song together. And as we're coming to this table, I want us to be reminded today that this is the table of freedom. Because the Lord, uh, Jesus, reminds us at this table and meets us at this table to show us that he has given himself to us that we might be truly free. Freedom is not found in a law Congress will pass next week. It is not found in a Supreme Court decision. It's not found in whatever other thing we think is going to do it other than the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That is where freedom is found. And so the team is going to lead us as we're distributing the elements this morning. They're going to lead us in singing a song, Jesus, Thank You. We, we kind of relearned it again last week. And it's a song that's focused on the gospel and that we who were once his enemies are now seated at his table and we are responding with Jesus, thank you. So don't listen to them. Actively sing with them. Sing the gospel. Sing our freedom. And I want us to focus and reflect on the gospel. Christ given for us. And as we do, and we thank God for justification, 
and freedom from sin's penalty, and that I have a right to come to this table, we don't stop. If the Lord says, look where sin is distorting the child, we need to confess that. We need to repent of that. We need to put that off and say, Jesus, put righteousness in its place. I don't want to be deformed. I don't want to be distorted. Friends, if we think and we're honest, we have all seen where someone has been trapped. I, a couple weeks ago, was listening to a, a country song, and it's about a guy who's a, a drunk. And somebody's he's asking for money, and they're looking at him, they're kind of looking with disdain. And he says, you're sitting there, and... You, you think you're judging me, but you don't know Jack. Jack Daniels is what I want. And you can't, you don't understand why I gave my family away. You don't know why I don't have my wife and kids, because you don't know Jack. You don't understand that double shot. You don't know what that does to me. Never had that problem with alcohol. I, I don't understand that. I understand other things that have pulled, tugged, Make no mistake, sin will not stop, will not be contained, will not be managed. So God in his grace gives us a table to come free as sinners, those who have fallen short. But we come saying, Jesus, cleanse me from its penalty and cleanse me from its power. I don't want to trade away paradise for this stuff. I don't want the very gift of God to be trampled underfoot because I've been enslaved by something. I encourage you this morning, let's do that and do it together. What I received from the Lord, I pass on to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread. When he'd given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he Father, this morning we come to the table and we ask you to meet us. Lord, we ask that where there is guilt, you would forgive. Lord, where there is enslavement, you would shatter and set free by your Holy Spirit. Lord, I ask that you do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Get the elements. We'll hold on and take them together. I encourage you, let's stand together as we're waiting to get the elements. We're going to sing this morning the song, Jesus, Thank You. Jesus, we thank you for your broken body. Lord, we recognize that no other thing could give us freedom. But you, the perfect, spotless Lamb of God, were broken. You were crushed for us and for our iniquity. And it is in your breaking, in your bearing stripes, in your being crushed, that we are forgiven and that we are made whole.
So Lord Jesus, this morning we do say, Jesus, thank you. We are grateful that because of your broken body, we have been forgiven once and for all of the penalty of sin. And our salvation is secure because of you and all you have done for us. Jesus, thank you. Amen. Jesus, thank you for shedding your blood for us. And Lord, we thank you that this blood is powerful enough to cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we might serve the living God. And Jesus, as your people this morning, we proclaim we are grateful and thankful for the freedom from the penalty of sin, but we are also grateful and thankful that we who've been forgiven of its penalty do not have to live under its power. We are grateful and thankful that your blood cleanses us not only from a guilty conscience, but from a bent will. That your blood is powerful to cleanse and forgive and to purify us from all acts of unrighteousness so that we might serve the Father. Jesus, we thank you for your blood and for its full cleansing power. Thank you. Holy Spirit, you are the spirit of liberty. You are the one about whom the Apostle Paul wrote and said, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And you are the one who is consistently changing us so that we are becoming more and more like Christ from one degree of glory to another. And so Holy Spirit, we pray that as we have read, as we have sang, as we have prayed, as we have taught, and as we have experienced the gospel at the table, we pray that you would take the glorious liberty of the gospel and you would apply it to our hearts, that we would not only go forth with the good news that we have been forgiven of our sins, but that we would also go forth with the good news to go and sin no more. Lord, we do not want to be enslaved by sin's power. So Holy Spirit, where there is deception, I pray you would break it and you would give light of understanding. Where there is a deformity in our desires, I pray that you would take them and you would mold our very desires so that we would hunger and thirst after righteousness. Where there is destruction and we seem impotent and broken, I pray you would restore and you would heal so that we might grow strong and mighty like oaks of righteousness around the table of our God. Holy Spirit, I pray you could set us free. And Lord, that as we go forth this July the 4th, we would celebrate true freedom, deep freedom, everlasting freedom.
that is ours in Jesus Christ. I ask you to do this in Jesus' name for the glory of the Father. Amen. Amen. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, may he equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in you what is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And God's people say, Amen. Amen. Go in the peace of Jesus. See you later this week. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.